Welcome back. Welcome in. This is Country Roads Confidential at Earsports.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. I am Mike Casaza. Chris Anderson, I have a question for you. Are you ready? Right off the bat, let's go. No football game for the University of Houston this week. <laughs> is Dana Holgerson undefeated, or does he have four losses? He is. He is. He should be three and zero in my book. I, I've I've gone on this rant before. Uh, it, they should be three and zero because, by all accounts, they've done everything they can possibly do and done a good job of adhering to protocols and they're just getting the worst luck in the world and i i know they've lost four games but one of those was a pac-12 league decision so i don't mm-hmm. think you can forfeit wazoo on that one but um i if, if i were dana i would be so furious so like just absolutely irate and i think they should be three and zero right now i i just flat out think that's the way it should be I'm I'm proud of him because he's kept quiet on this. I guess he chirped up a little bit. Chirping is the word that uh, the Baylor athletic director used. But like, this has got to drive him crazy because I think a lot of people. Well, one, they saw what happened at Houston initially when they were like the first, maybe not the first school, but one of the first schools certainly that had a big number of positive tests. Which was mm-hmm. let's rehash all this. That was going to happen when you brought people back to school. Not maybe to that volume, but it was going to happen. And I think people see Holgerson and go, "Of course it happened to that guy." I don't know what he's supposed to do about that, but here it is. Since then, they've been good, as good as anybody since then, and they can't play a game. And I wonder if in some corner of his office, he's just going, I told you so. Like, we're okay. What's the matter here? It's got to be driving him crazy here. And I wonder how many more. Because if you look at that conference, too, they're having some major trouble there with other teams in that conference, too. Who knows how many games he's going to miss out on, too. Um, Are you at all concerned about Baylor next week for West Virginia? Um, Not the game, but, I mean, is the game going to happen? And then looking down the road, some of the other teams that are coming up here, um, contact tracing is – gobbling up a lot of teams and it sounds like that kansas state was really close to maybe having a punt on a game um who knows what happens at west virginia who knows what happens saturday i mean but we we have two rounds of tests that still have to go they tested on wednesday don't know the results they test again today friday with the antigen test but this is the unknown but i don't know do you can you even worry about it or you just kind of have to go until you hit a wall I think you kind of have to go to hit a wall, but something to pay attention to with this is obviously if it's happening a couple, like a few weeks out, a few weeks out, not a couple, I think, because then you'll get some overlap. But um, Baylor would concern me just because that's, you know, that's coming up next week. But Kansas State, for example, uh, they said the other day, I think, I think head coach Kleiman like just came right out and admitted it that they were cutting it close on the bare minimums for their previous game and would be again this week against Oklahoma and it might get canceled and, and you know, maybe it will be by the time we publish this uh, podcast, but that is what a m- over a month from now, by that point, mm. like, for, you know, I, that wouldn't concern me if I were West Virginia five weeks from now, because you're going to have contract tracing. Those guys that already have it should be recovered by then. And then they're not even getting tested because they've already been cleared by the three-month rule. Once you get test positive, you don't have to – or test negative after testing positive. You don't have to get tested for three months. So it's a – let's not get on the herd immunity band, bandwagon here. But, um, you know, if if you're looking for West Virginia to play football games, I guess you're looking for opponents later in the season to go ahead and have those issues now instead of, you know, like Baylor next week. If they don't play Baylor next week, they're both open the following week. 
Right. And I think that's that's not a coincidence that they actually tried to do that. And there's there's some things like that that exist for other teams. It's harder later in the schedule. We have to go to the back end of the schedule. But yeah, it's a possibility. Um, the Chris's best bets is live, and I <laughs> use that word live in so many so many definitions there. <laughs> You were out of town when Alan Bell from Sportsline joined me. I'm sure you listened to that when you were on whatever beach you were on yeah. that time and we're taking notes. But what have we learned about betting apart from the fact that Navy can erase a 24 nothing deficit against a really good two-lane team and just completely ruin my weekend? Um, I forgot where I was going with that. I'm just so upset about that. But, hey, what, what have you learned about the best bets and, and wagering on college football so far here? Betting is terrible. Uh, betting on the under – it is already horrible and then betting on the under and looking like you're about to hit on all five of your under bets and then losing on all of them or, or four of them is just like it's no fun it's no fun betting the under it's really not it is just it's it feels disgusting hoping that everybody's terrible and no one scores and they just punt a lot that's not fun at all and then but you see why I wonder how many of those people that are like, oh, what a bunch of jerks running up the score. I wonder how many of those people are really just upset because they bet the under. Because that was how I felt like watching that uh, Central Florida Georgia Tech game when yeah. they were already up three touchdowns and running, you know, a full seven seconds or less kind of helter skelter style offense to score another touchdown with four minutes left. And all I was thinking was, Ah, that's going to put it on the over, but it, it came out of my mouth with, ah, oh, what a bunch of jerks running up the score. And in reality, I was just upset because my best bet was under 60, you know, teasing that and getting it up to 69. And that touchdown put it at 70. So it was delightful. Alan and I talked about how offenses were going to be up, and it, it is a little bit, but those under bets are, are man, they're inviting sometimes too. For example, the, the Texas Tech game against shoot who they play Houston Baptist yeah it was like 82 and a half and I was like <laughs> that's never gonna get there and it almost got there and then uh I, I would say this where, where do you stand on parlays right now because a money line parlays are really tricky but man there's there's some weird stuff that happens and teams are winning that you wouldn't think that they'll win and that could ruin two or three other sure things in a parlay too it almost seems like to stay away from some of them unless you're gonna you know mess with money lines and tease a little bit no, I didn't. I, I think I hit my last parlay the other day, uh, last week, and I'm going to try the same thing this week, where I just pick enormous favorites and then one kind of underdog that I feel good about because you know it's it's just basically if that underdog wins, your gravy, and then the when you add on the super duper favorites, it just adds a few bucks with each one. Uh, I think my underdog pick was Boston College winning, and then a couple of heavy heavy favorites, and that paid out. What was I think it was three to one, something mm-hmm. like that. So that was a nice one. Uh, this week, I'm doing the same thing, and this is going to sound crazy. Maybe it's a little pent-up uh, anger towards Georgia Tech con- contempt. Not anger, contempt, I think is good uh, for Georgia Tech. Syracuse at plus 270. Um, oh. Seven-point underdogs. But Georgia Tech, look, I know they un- upset Florida State, but I think there's a real possibility that Florida State's terrible. Mm. And... You know, Georgia Tech was just up for that night, and, and they might be mediocre, and Syracuse might be mediocre. And, and you get Syracuse at home um, for whatever that's worth these days. But that might be my little underdog pick this week. So, What do you do with undefeated Central Florida? <laughs> Is it like I'm, I'm already there. 
<laughs> is it six and zero Central Florida, or are they going to get all the way to eight or nine games? I think that's that's well, key for me. Let's assume they finish it. They beat Memphis. They beat Cincinnati. Um, those are two good wins. They would have. I think Memphis is. I think Cincinnati's in their division, so they have to play Memphis in the title game. So those are good wins. Georgia Tech's in a power five that was coming off a good game, and that, that was never close. Uh, I, I just wonder if they're the you know blank and O team, and there's a couple one loss or two loss teams for power conferences. Probably two loss teams. It all lines up right. And again, remember they lost like ten people who opted out of the season too, like right before it started too. But they're they're really good on offense too. They're gonna they're gonna beat some people just because of that. And then I don't know, man. That's that's the power six, right? And if there's uh-huh. One of them that isn't playing at least, you still have five, right? So they'd be in that conversation. I think you have to think about them. Here's here's the catch, though. Um, the SEC is only playing the SEC, so the SEC is going to be amazing this year. Going to be, they might have three teams in the in the playoffs because you know they're just beating up on each other, Mike. Don't you know that? So I heard, yeah. some yeah, of them don't three, count. Yeah, three three SEC teams in Ohio State, I think, is going to be the debate, or two SEC teams, Ohio State, and do you go the Big Twelve champ? Or UCF, I can already see it coming down the pipeline. Yep, it's going to happen. And then the the tricky thing about the Big Ten adding that extra game um, that makes it a nine game conference schedule. It's it's uh, boy, they're they're clever. They're going to make this a conversation about them. And again, the it, I almost blame these conferences for not making some type of uniformity there. But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they only had five months to work on this, so maybe they needed like another month or another six months to get it done. I'm not sure. We'll see. Let's talk about our game on Saturday, 3.30 ABC. West Virginia travels to Boone to Pickens Stadium, one of the weirder venues in the Big 12. Um, really tight sidelines. Uh, paddles on the padded walls. When the students lean over, kind of get some weird noise in there. 14,000 people at the game last week, too, which is pretty impressive number in 2020 parlance but um what's our line in this one here it's still over a touchdown but not double digits i think i reasoned 12 points the last time we talked about this game you were much closer to the eight that they settled on here um it seems like that maybe the question mark obviously is the quarterback but also that early season west virginia's defense in particular their line oklahoma state's offensive line and their quarterback question marks um i don't know but this feels like a lot closer than a runaway game now yeah, I think before the season, um, we talked about it, and I said 14. I think I picked Oklahoma State to win by 14 in my predictions right before the season. And when we talked about the line, I said somewhere around 10. And when our Oklahoma State site reached out to me the other day to talk about a prediction, I I, I bumped it all the way down to four. <laughs> and I think there's a real possibility that West Virginia can win this game. I don't know. I you know I, I keep I, I've been watching some film. I've been looking at some pro football focus stats and numbers and grades and matchups. And I I don't know. I I need to take a minute, step back, you know, wipe off the old golden blue blinders here. But each of these matchups seems to be, hey, this is key. And West Virginia is kind of better there. Hey, this is key. And West Virginia is kind of better there. And then when you take out, just a, a wild card super talent like uh, Spencer Sanders, um, you know, things keep tilting towards West Virginia. And, and I'm not sure I, I'm going to keep looking at it, but man, it really makes me want to think twice about some of my picks. 
Let's start with Sanders. Um, we'll go over a couple of things here that are interesting. There's some specific matchups, offense against defense, respectively. There's obviously the two lines that are going to do battle, but Sanders is the that's the headline right now. Um, ankle sprain. That I think what's concerning is he tried to play on in that game and he couldn't. And if he's in a boot and they take him out of it on Tuesday, he's really got to practice Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, probably. Um, and if you're in a boot until Tuesday, you're kind of crossing your fingers. No information is going to leak out on that, but. Ankle sprains or ankle sprains, that's tough. I'm not sure where people stand on Spencer Sanders, though. Um, divisive. Maybe it's the dual threat thing. Maybe it's the fact that he was just a freshman, redshirt freshman last year. But turnovers were an issue with him, um, and the team wasn't terrible without him. It's better, the offense, with him than a junior college transfer or a true freshman, even though the true freshman looked okay, 13 points in the three drives. But... Um, also, just one threat from either one of those guys. Sanders is two. He hits you with the RPO. You know, things are going to be different. Um, is it as big of a deal as it seems like because it's the quarterback? Is it not as big of a deal because maybe Sanders is just a part of an offense that seems to chug along no matter who's in there? Good point about the Sanders thing. Just because of, of the turnovers, um, I believe he was like top 10 in turn in interceptions or top 10 in fumbles top 10 in interceptions top 10 in total turnovers by an individual player it was it was it was significant uh for him but then again he's a freshman last year so that's to be expected but as you noted the offense it's gonna be different with illingworth i mean spencer sanders is a 6'1 200 pound athlete that it, well excuse me he's a quarterback he can throw he can read defenses but he's athletic and can run um illingsworth is Six five, two hundred and thirty pounds, and a lot. I, I mean, even on that pass, the one pass to, uh, I believe it was Tylen Wallace up the right sideline that set them up for what was essentially the game-winning touchdown or the game-sealing touchdown, and it was, it felt so slow. Like I was watching that play over and over again to see what Wallace did and look at the offensive line, and then just you look at Illingworth and he gets it. And it's it's a slow step back. It's a slow kind of stand up straight, a slow arm motion. And it was a beautiful pass. But it, it the offense just – the offense moved better when he was out there than it did with the second-string quarterback. But he just doesn't seem to have the dynamic part of it that Sanders certainly does. Just looking back through the years and the guys who played quarterback there, obviously Rudolph's one that everybody remembers, but man, before that, I mean, they've run guys in there that are like one-year starters, like Taylor Cornelius, who's good. Mm -hmm. um, they just Again, it's kind of a plug-and-play thing a little bit. Last year, Drew Brown played. That's the quarterback who played against West Virginia. Uh, had a much better QB rating, 107.6 in NFL terms, 91.9 to Sanders. Uh, much better completion percentage, um, 67 to 62. Seven touchdowns, one pick. Sanders is 16 touchdowns, 11 picks. He also had some fumble troubles. Uh, he was the better player in that offense. Um, granted, Sanders is young, but I do think that you can you can make that offense run with, well, not you or me, Chris, but certainly someone like you or me <laughs> would probably be able to do it. Um, and also, Hubbard's good. Tylen Wallace is back. They have two Power 5 grad transfers who are talented, accomplished players who didn't even catch a pass last week. I don't think that was on purpose. They needed to get out of there with a win. You think they're, they're not saving anything if they lose that game. Um, they're, they're going to be good on offense, provided they can block it, which is a question mark. Um, that's a mess. What they're going to do, I don't know, but they ended up playing a completely bizarre offensive line. Um, and I bring this up because pressure 
is something that Sanders is not good at. Um, his numbers last year when he was under pressure were pretty weak, um, 42% completion, um, had a hard time, threw the ball away a lot, didn't do a lot of good stuff, more touchdowns and more interceptions than touchdowns, of course. Um, if you're Civ up front and you're facing a defensive line like West Virginia and a guy like Bartlett or Cowan or maybe even Tony Fields now who can stream through and cause in trouble, you're going to be under pressure. If it's Sanders, that's a worry, even though he can run. But if you're running again and again and again and your offensive line isn't working, they're turnstiling guys, you're, you're just not going to be effective. Um, and again, we don't know what to expect from Sanders or Ellingworth or whomever. We don't know who to expect in the offensive line either. Yeah, that was, and that was something we heard about at West Virginia last year about cohesiveness and guys playing together and how important it was to kind of have five guys playing together and a center that knew and trusted the guys around him and could call out uh, uh, blocking assignments and everything. But in Oklahoma State's first game, they played nine offensive linemen. They started out with with their starting five and. Then there were a couple injuries, and all of a sudden, the starting left tackle was being moved to right tackle, and the backup right tackle was going to left tackle, and then the backup right guard did terrible, so then the le- backup left guard became the right guard. They were all over the place, and it doesn't seem like there's a definitive answer heading into this week either, because at least one of those linemen um, is probably out maybe two of them the two the right starting right guard and starting right tackle from last week might both be out for this coming week and with an open week you know maybe they try something else maybe they look completely different but um it's never good when you are making that many moves and that many changes on the offensive line they're supposed to be loaded on the offensive line they're supposed to bring four offensive linemen back who started games last year two of them transferred for I believe disciplinary reasons. One retired. Tevin Jenkins is their left tackle. He's very good. He played right tackle for most of the last game. Josh Jenkins is the left guard. I, I wonder if he moves around because he can. Um, let's just say Jenkins is better at left tackle than right tackle. You might move uh, Sills to the right side to give that a little bit more stability over there. I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see. It seems like the only sure thing is their center, who's a, I believe a former walk-on who's made himself into a pretty good player. Um, and that was supposed to be the one guy who wasn't a returning starter. So you want to get that guy protected and you really can't, you know, if you're, if you're changing the guards around him and all that stuff, it's going to be difficult here too. Um, but boy, the guard play is really important, especially with this matchup. Um, Hubbard's something else. We don't have to spend a lot of time on him, but he can take and go pretty much anywhere. Um, by the way, have you watched his high school film? Uh, yes, I have. The huddle clip starts with your run-of-the-mill 105-yard touchdown <laughs> because he plays in Canada, and it's a 110-yard field. I forgot all about that. And then the, the weird thing about the pre stop motion is great in Canadian football, too. But anyways, um, he's great at the middle. Um, he, he's a good one-cut guy. He sees it and goes. And guard, center, guard is really important in that. Um, they use their H-back or their cowboy back, I guess, to help some things and to seal some things and make sure he's got space and time. And he's really good at that, gutting it up the middle. Um, not so against some teams. And when you're talking about Dante Stills, Darius Stills, certainly had to put Tony Fields in there now, too, based on what we saw that first game. Um, they're going to be good in the A and B gap, and it's going to make things a little bit easier um, on the defense against that Oklahoma State inside and up run game where they get inside and they go up the field. Um, matchup to watch. You think so? Yeah. I. Looking at stats from last year, again, using pro football focused stats about where they're running, where Hubbard's running, 
he averaged over eight yards per carry between the tackles. Um, you know, just off center and just off guard, over eight yards per carry. Once you push him outside, uh, far left, 4.8, off the left tackle, 3.3, right tackle, 3.6. I, I mean, it's a dramatic difference once you get to push him outside. And this is might surprise some people, but when we bring up Darius Stills, I think most people think of this relentless pass rushing defensive tackle. When and he is, but he graded out just as well as a run defender as he did a pass rusher last year when he was named first team All Big Twelve. So he's up there. And when Oklahoma State played West Virginia last season, that was Chuba Hubbard's or Oklahoma State, I guess, as a whole worst game running up this the second worst run grade of the season for them and their worst run grade for running up the middle all season long. So it was already bad last year when they had their offensive line intact against West Virginia, at least. And this year they're coming up against the same defensive line, but their offensive line is in shambles and they might be, I don't want to say more one dimensional, but you know, you might be able to zero in more on Chuba Hubbard if, um, if Sanders is out or if Illingworth is struggling. So this is one of those key matchups for this game. And, and a lot of the signs are pointing right to West Virginia. Big matchup is Tylen Wallace. You pegged him a Heisman Trophy favorite. Was it before last season? I, I pegged him as my dark horse Big 12 Offensive Player of the Year. I said, well, I, I was going for a wide receiver to win it over a quarterback. He was on track. Yeah. Granted, his teammate was slightly better, but not for his, you know, misdeeds. He was very good last year. He's very good in general. He's the guy who's going to catch screens and run away from you, catch short stuff and run away from you. He's going to go over top and run away from you. He's acrobatic. Um, he's he's very good. He's. I'm, I'm curious what he does in the NFL because these Oklahoma State receivers have had at best mixed results in the NFL. Um, like I thought, James Washington would be a really good NFL player. Hasn't quite worked. Um, Wallace intrigues me along the same regard, but. I would wonder if there's a bigger matchup there than that right side. He plays the right side. Nick Troy Fortune plays across from him. Fortune's not coming off the field, I don't think, because we can get to this, too. Uh, Jamal Adai says they only really have three corners right now. I don't know if that's a sandbag or not, but you look at right side passes here. Um, Sanders, if he's in, 127 passes between the hash marks. Not uncommon. Guys like to go in the middle because they can see it. They don't have to move around as much, and deep middle is something that Oklahoma State loves to do. Uh, 38 to the left, 72 to the right, almost two to one, right to left. Um, and guess who's on the right side? Wallace. Um, first game, Sanders did not throw a pass to the left or the hash. Illingworth did not throw a pass to the left or the hash. Everything that they threw went to the right. Uh, guess who's over there? Tylen Wallace. Um, that right side of the field, that's your best corner against their best receiver. I'm not saying you shut down that side of the field, but I'm not even saying you have to win that side of the field again and again and again. Wallace is going to get you. They can't get beat on the left side. That whoever's playing that left side, whether it's Drayshawn Miller, whether it's Jackie Matthews, maybe Daryl Porter, who knows? Um, there's good receivers over there. You can't lose that side of the field. It's not their strength. You can't let them turn it into a strength because you've taken away Wallace or because Fortune's played very well. If you win the right side, you got to win both sides. I, I was trying to look back at the coverage against uh, Wallace, but again, you, you already noted he was out last year against West Virginia. Um, 
So the last time he got to play and, and was lining up in the same spot, right side against left side cornerback for West Virginia was Keith Washington in 2018. And, and Keith Washington shut him down. Now, granted, that was two years ago, Tylen Wallace. Uh, he only caught four passes out of nine targets for 39 yards. Um, granted, it was for two touchdowns. Yep. <laughs> but uh, Keith Washington did, did also get two picks. So I think that was, man, I forgot how good of a battle that was. Uh, mm-hmm. I have to go back and watch that one on the video. But he, I think that's the key because you're right. I, they don't move. They don't move sides. This isn't one of those situations where the cornerback is going to shadow. Uh, West Virginia is not going to shadow him from one side to the other with Nick Troy Fortune, I don't, I don't believe. And they're also not going to move um, Wallace to the other side of the offense either. So it's going to be almost entirely on uh, Nick Troy Fortune to make make some plays on Saturday. What do you make of a die saying Miller, Fortune, Matthews, Space, Daryl Porter, Space, literally anybody else? Um, I don't know how to take that. I, I think I mean I. In my mind, I'm imagining a lot of safety help. Some of those safeties coming down as more nickel corners and helping or, or being up deep. And it, I, they did it last year. Let's put it that way. Uh, West Virginia was not deep at cornerback last year. And they went several games where it was literally two, maybe three cornerbacks. And if it got past that, it was, well, let's move Josh Norwood over from safety and go that way because we don't have another choice. And I think they're right back in that spot again. Yeah, it could be a Tate Mayo game or or a Alonzo Adai game where you play the one high safety and that free safety comes down and helps. Although free safeties are generally the high safety, so that might not be a great thing. But they've wanted to use those safeties in coverage better. Um, that's why Mayo's back there. Um, that's why Jaido is playing some spear because he can run around and cover. I'm not sure that he'll be a part of the game plan because Tyke Smith is so good. But I think you'll see some situations where they do that. The trouble is that Oklahoma State does not spread and go four wide very often. They use that that cowboy back a bunch and that dude's six seven two seventy and he's a whole lunch if you're gonna try to tackle him. So they're gonna play like a lot of that eleven personnel, which means you're not gonna be flooding the field with defensive backs. So maybe you can get away with it, but certainly you better be able to tackle um if you're if you're going one on ones, if you're playing with just one safety deep. See what happens. Um I don't think that West Virginia showed anything against or needed to against Eastern Kentucky to figure out what type of coverages they'll do? Will they roll stuff? Will they shade things? I don't know, but I think you're going to see a lot of attention to um, to Wallace, obviously, into that right side, just because. But again, you don't have to devote as much attention to it if you're good in that right side. You can maybe protect things or play it more straight up. Um, I hate talking about tempo, especially in what year nine in the Big Twelve. I don't think tempo is what it was when you saw these teams that were just racing from the whistle to the next snap and trying to snap it a hundred times. You're certainly not going to see that this year because. Injury concerns, soft tissue especially, um, just fatigue and conditioning right now. But Oklahoma can Oklahoma State can rev it up when they want to. And if we're talking about a team that's going to pop big plays on the run or the pass, if you're talking about a defense that I think has figured out maybe it's top line but maybe doesn't like its backups everywhere, if you're talking about playing, I don't know, 80 snaps and then some of these are going to be gassers for your, you know, your 10 seconds between the snap maybe – I feel like tempo in that third and fourth quarter could be a strategic weapon for one team, probably Oklahoma State. But um, again, I don't think tempo is a big deal or as big of a deal anymore, but there's teams that can do it and teams that will do it. This seems like a team in a day 
where Oklahoma State could inflict some sort of effect of that tempo thing. I I, I think I'm taking the opposite side of, of this argument than you. Okay. Because I think Oklahoma State, they should not go tempo um, because I don't think they have the horses up front. I think West Virginia does. I think if they can, obviously, you're, you're going to get tricky with having to get um, subs in there uh, if somebody goes tempo because they don't have to obviously pause if the defense tries to make sub. They only have to pause if the offense tries to. But I'm not sure that offensive line can keep up with tempo. I don't think they have the 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 horses to do that um, with what they got with injuries and guys rotating in and backups playing. So I think if, if they try to go tempo, that might actually work out in West Virginia's favor. Yep, it might be more of a cumulative effect where if they can run the ball and their their line plays well, let's say, then you're more effective that way. But you're right, if you're hurrying up into second long, that's not going to help you, and that's going to be a bad thing too. Uh, flip sides of the ball here. The things that we're talking about as far as concerns and matchup advantages, almost all of them so far have favored uh, West Virginia. And when you think about it this way, no question who the quarterback is. Offensive line, I mean, has some, I don't want to say question marks, but some shady spots, but we're talking about guys who will make their first start who were going to start last game anyways. So it's not like you're worried about what's going to happen to Chase Barrett. Maybe you're intrigued by what Junior Uzebu does on the left side, but if he doesn't play, hey, you got a guy who started and played a bunch and played pretty well last game and, and Brandon Yates. So your your offensive line questions, if you're West Virginia, are not what they are for Oklahoma State. You have collectively, I would say, comparable, maybe superior talent at receiver. Do you have a Tylen Wallace? No. Are your group of four and five receivers on par? Maybe. Maybe better. Two tight ends come back. I mean, there's a lot to like about West Virginia's offense here in the situation it goes into. Um, and also, should be able to communicate it. Won't be that crowded. Um, not a first time out there. It just seems like that there's not a lot of white knuckle stuff for Neil Brown and Jared Parker. I'm trying not to step too much on my my key matchup thing here, but it's hard it's hard to ignore this this matchup here for West Virginia at wide receiver. And I'm not talking about Sam James, and I believe it's it's pronounced Rodarius Williams. That that's that's going to be a tough one. That's going to be a tough one for both of them. I think that'll be a battle. Uh, place that I'm looking is the other side of the field, with presumably Bryce Ford Wheaton against um, Jarek Bernard Converse, mm-hmm. I believe is, is is his name, and he plays that opposite side of the field. He plays the right cornerback, so he'll be lining up against West Virginia's outside receivers on that side of the ball, which has been. So far, at least, you know, in, in game one was Bryce Ford Wheaton for the most part. Uh, when Bernard Converse has lined up against West Virginia, the Mountaineers have eaten him up the last two years. Uh, <laughs> they have completed. They, they have. Rodarius Williams held his own, did a nice job. Uh, obviously, they had A.J. Green before that, and he did a great job, really shut down David Sills two seasons ago, but he's long gone. But Bernard Converse. Over the last two seasons, he's been a part-time starter or at least a frequent player. I think he was nickel cornerback two years ago and then was a starting cornerback last year. West Virginia has completed 10 of 14 passes with a touchdown and 140, 150 yards. Um, And that includes last year's George Campbell touchdown right up the middle. Uh, Again, uh, George Campbell, big, long, strong, wide receiver. And Bernard Converse was literally flailing all over him doing nothing to stop him from catching that touchdown right up the middle 
right like Bryce Ford. We get, you know, just a, a nice uh, slant pattern, deep slant pattern, and a deep post pattern. And that's what Bryce Ford Wheaton likes to do. That's a pass that Jared Dagey made. I think, what was that, the first pass he made against Eastern Kentucky, mm-hmm. that, that right up the middle post play? And I think you're going to see Bryce Ford Wheaton do something similar because he is a big, long, strong wide receiver that runs that that pass and and can have a nice matchup with him on the outside. Bernard Converse started 23 straight games, which I want to say it's kind of unique for a cornerback, especially a cornerback who's a junior. That's, I mean, that's a guy who's playing and playing a lot as a redshirt freshman or a true freshman, right? So that's don't take anything yeah. away from him. Rodarius Williams has started 40 straight games. No defensive <laughs> back in the FBS has started more. No defensive back in the FBS has started more consecutive games than him. So they've seen a lot. Um, and, and again, you're talking behind him. Colby Harvey Peel is a really good player. Trey Sterling, I think they like a whole lot. He was active the first game. Tanner McAllister throws himself around back there. Those are three safeties they can cover too. They're they're going to be good. Um, Brown th- seems to think that they have Neil Brown seems to think they have four NFL players back there. I'm, I'm assuming he means the two corners, Harvey Peel and Sterling. Um, they're good. They're going to be tough. But I think you got to take shots. What was interesting too, they've their their defensive coordinator is Jim Knowles, who's from Duke, and he made his name by bringing pressure at Duke. Were they going to be able to man up in the ACC and and play great coverage and cover people for, you know, six seconds, five seconds? Could they get athletes who could run around and make plays in zones? Not really. Um, they pressure a lot, and Duke was a really active defense that got sacks, got pressures, turned the ball over that way. Um, Oklahoma State was kind of passive on defense for a long time. They brought Jim Knowles in, and Knowles played, again, a similar Oklahoma State-style defense where they had really good corners, and they, they'd leave them out there, but he started to pressure more and more and more. They zeroed West Virginia a bunch last season. They didn't really respect the running game, obviously, or and just kind of dared them to do some stuff. And you look at what happened last game, the first game against Tulsa, and Neil Brown pointed this out. They were way different. They played a lot of man-to-man, and it may be because they liked their secondary, which maybe speaks to a huge matchup here, which is going to be can they – can they find the times where there's one high safety or where there's a matchup on one side? Can Daigie get it up the field? Can James or Wheaton or Sam Brown, can they do something to stretch the defense? That's that's huge. I think that's basically – that's kind of like the Hubbard versus the middle of the defense for West Virginia's offense. It's their outside receivers against those one-on-one, you know, mono and mono spots in the secondary because can they run like they did against Eastern Kentucky? I would say not to the same – ratio but they probably can move it a little bit but i don't think they're going to be able to lean on the run and win this game they're going to have to match big plays and, and probably get some scores or at least get the ball into the scoring zone just by either catching it on the run or catching it and running yeah and i think those big plays are again are going to come from the bernard converse side because uh, if there are a few oklahoma state fans listening in on this uh, here's here's some positive news for you and maybe a reality check for for the west virginia faithful um rodarius williams you mentioned 40 straight games he does not get beat deep, does yeah. not. He lined up against Sam James last season. Sam James, three catches, five targets, 19 yards, 19 yards. Um, he kept him in front of him, uh, kept him from beating him deep. And like you said, it, it's going to be important to, to get some long balls, but that's probably not going to happen against Williams because not only did Sam James not get to do it, but Marcus Sims, who has been, <clears throat> for whatever you think of Sims as, as, a, as a complete player, he was a deep threat, a real live deep threat. And not even he could get behind Rodarius Williams. He had four catches on seven targets 
for 30 yards two seasons ago. So Williams is not someone you're going to beat deep easily. So you might have to go the other way, or you might have to try to trick them, uh, trick Williams with, with, with some kind of route pattern and get back into the safeties. But safeties are pretty darn good too, Mike. So yeah. it, it's not going to be easy. I think McAllister was a corner before. Um, but again, he wasn't getting on the field because of those two guys, and they made, they made him a safety, which is not unusual in the Big 12. By the way, one more on Rodarius Williams, and we can adjourn this meeting of the fan club. Do you know who his brother is? I do not. Greedy Williams. Ooh. So good genes. Another very there. good. Yeah, another very good defense back. Uh, wrapping it up, maybe here. I don't know. Unless we have more things we can ramble on. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned about this one here. They have some guys who can fly, and we're not even talking about Hubbard, but Braden Johnson and L.D. Brown are two sprinters that are going to be on kick return. Stoner's smart and makes good plays on punt return. I'm not too worried about that. I think I saw that he had his career long against Tulsa when I was watching that game, and it was, I don't know, 30, 35 yards. Still a good return, but not a, not a dangerous guy. But he's done it since he was a freshman. Um, but kick return, I don't know, man. West Virginia was really worried about their performance on special teams. I'm wondering if you put new guys in there, and it's their first time out there, and all of a sudden Johnson or Brown is sprinting, um, and they're always good on special teams. Uh, that That concerns me a little bit there. Or do you say, first time out, we made some mistakes, learn from it, and you don't make any changes on your special teams? And related, and let me ask you a question real quick, and maybe I should have checked this out on the film before we got on here. Was that switch at kickoff just just a switch on the depth chart, or like you know, just on the paper, or was Casey Legg the kickoff guy, and they actually switched to Evans, or are presumably going to switch to Evans Daly, like the depth chart says? But let's get to that. We don't even have to answer the, the special teams question because we don't know. But like that's my observation. I'm worried about that because they have sprinters and West Virginia made, made changes. Who knows? But they weren't great in that first game. Um, there are some depth chart changes we should talk about. And the oh. one that was curious was the kicker one because Leg definitely kicked off late in the game, and he's definitely better at it. Um, I've had some people solicit some information and, and send it to me that Leg is well, he's better at it, but Staley has a hiccup or whatever when he approaches the ball. And you can tell, like, his strides are off or his shuffles off. Now, does that mean he's not doing it right or he's not doing it again? I don't know. It's something you can work on. Uh, kickers are, are creatures of habit, and the the extra point PAT stride is not the same as a kickoff stride. Maybe Legs is better at it because he's conditioned to it. Maybe he's not going to have a mechanical hiccup, like I said. But he's better at it. If you're going to bring the kickers, bring him. Because I'd much rather have first and 10 at the 25 than, you know, hear the fight song or have first and 10 at the 50. So I would do that, but was that a thing like they actually did get the kickoff in the second half and he did it, whereas they were trying to get McGee in the game and they couldn't sit and punt? I'm, I'm assuming that's where you're going here, and I don't know, but I think that leg kicked off in the first half too, right? That's what I thought. I was trying to, like you said, you were talking about new guys starting in, in special teams and making changes, and that was the first thing that came to my mind was that I thought leg was doing all the kickoffs for the game in – I thought it was. I thought he did okay. I thought he did pretty well. Uh, you know, a little awkward, not awkward, awkward in a good way. Like uh, putting the opposing teams in awkward situations, whether to return it or call a fair catch inside the five, because nowadays you get that out to the twenty-five. But um, it was curious to me that that was the change that they made there, uh, because to answer your other question, I would not make many changes on special teams. I would really honestly try to play it safe 
with special teams and, and kind of, I guess, play not to lose on special teams because it, it, it was a little suspect. There were some, some bad coverages, um, a, a fumble on one punt return. So it's a little suspect. I'd, I'd, play, I'd play not to lose on special teams right now. Yeah. The other depth chart changes. We talked about Tony Fields. This seemed like an inevitability. If not from when he committed, then certainly from when he had 10 tackles and 25 snaps. Um, I think Tonkery plays. I'm not sure how much he plays. Not sure where he plays, but I think he still plays. He's valuable. He's not a. He's not a. He's not a bum. He certainly has a purpose in the roster. Uh, that's probably the big one. The other one that people really want to talk about, and I get it, is Reese Smith over T.J. Simmons. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Those are really your only notable changes the three we've covered. And assuming that nobody is suspended for whatever reason beforehand, Barrett at center and Uzebu at left tackle. That'll be a change, but that was planned initially yeah i don't think I, I, the reese smith tj simmons thing i mean smith is done this this reeks is of motivation just like the sam brown starting over sam james thing uh to start the year although that wasn't reflected on the depth chart mm-hmm. um it, it kind of reeks of reese smith has done everything right and tj simmons who's supposed to be a leader of this team obviously did something wrong that got him suspended for the first game. And, and again, it was something small and it's already been forgiven. We've already gone over that. So it's not that big of a deal, but it, it's kind of, Hey, one, I, maybe it's a mix of the two, but either proving a point to TJ Simmons, but also telling everybody else, Hey, if you do everything right, like Reese Smith is doing everything right, not just catching passes, but blocking, playing special teams, showing up the meetings on time, all that stuff, you're going to get rewarded. You have to do that as a coach. You can't you, you can't have a guy who is somewhere in the same talent range that that is doing everything right and, and not reward him in some way. So I think it, it's a little bit of the two. Where do you stand on Simmons as a player? Um, decent inside receiver. I, I'm not sure. I think you know he had that one big play the first year to kick off the, the Tennessee game, right? With the, the long touchdown pass where he caught it over the mm-hmm. middle, ran it for the touchdown. And I think it was, oh, this guy came from Alabama. His first play is that. Okay, we're set. We're set there. He's amazing. He's our starter for the next three years. And I'm not sure he's that. I think he's more of kind of your fourth or fifth wide receiver on a very good offense. He had fewer catches than Kennedy McCoy last season and two more than Trayvon Wesco, who they didn't realize was on the team until like the Baylor game in 2018. Um, I think you're right. I think he's a piece that helps. Um, Great, great debut. The bar was very high. Um, I think his sin his first year was that he was the fourth receiver on a team that had three pretty good receivers and then found out they had Wesco and could do stuff with those guys. Um, but last season, the chance was there for him. I mean, no one really knew who or what Sam James or George Campbell were, and those were just better, more productive players. Um, and yet he was third on the team in receptions, but just second among receivers, and by a gap. James had 69, he had 35. You're talking 13 yards a catch, which is probably what you want for an inside guy. Um, but again, he needs to be on the field, and when you're injured, that's not your fault, but you know you lose your footing a little bit. And when you're suspended, that is your fault and you lose your footing a little bit. I'm, I'm with you 100%. Um, we think that they knew about the suspensions, what, 10 days or so? Somewhere in between one week and two weeks. More than one, less than two before the first game. Correct. And they put Smith at one. 
and didn't do anything in practices or during the game or off the field to lose that spot, I don't know how you can punish a kid for doing the right stuff. You can't punish a kid for doing something wrong. Um, I think Simmons will be back in the good graces. I think that's one of the players mm. that Brown really likes. I'm not sure the doghouse is that big uh, or that a guy like Simmons can't get out of it with just, you know, good deeds. And he, he, he seems like he'll be back out there sooner or later. Um, and blocking and, and doing things you can get those inside guys to do. Smith had some flashes there as a blocker. Uh, he'd probably tell you that he needs to get stronger and learn the leverage better. But he was good. He put himself in there. Simmons is good at that. He knows how to do it. You know, jokes notwithstanding, he's he's been a good blocker in his career. Um, has a purpose, too. So I think it's it's probably not that big of a deal and people want to make a big deal out of it because he was suspended last game. But who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe this is a thing. And maybe, maybe Smith is a thing, too, where he just takes off and, and took advantage of the opportunity that was given to him by unconventional means. Yeah, I think um, I had reported it the day of the season opener that, that Smith, even before the suspensions um, to Simmons and Dobson and, and anybody else, that he was already the backup at both the H and the slot. So he had already, again, even before suspensions, was making waves. And I think that suspension kind of put it over the top, and he got the start in that game and is going to get rewarded again this game. So um, a positive sign, true freshman, uh, really doing everything right. So that's that's good for the future. Curious to me that he's at the same position, too. We, we kind of thought um, that he'd be that other one. But who's behind Wright right now? Is it Malashevich? I guess so, because we don't know about Dobson. We do know that Keon Wakefield's no longer a part of it. So uh, Simmons Smith at one and Wright Malashevich at the other. I don't think a lot of people saw that coming. No, except for you and the Malashevich fans club. You saw that coming. I had some inside information. So... <laughs> And some finger sandwiches, as it were, at the last meeting. So, uh, excellent. Uh, by the All way, right. speaking of, yeah. wait, uh, hold on before before we go. Speaking mm-hmm. of your fan clubs, I think you need to bring up something extremely important at your next Neil Brown fan club. I, I meant to tweet this at you, and oh, at him. Did you notice on our Zoom call that he called it a bye week? Coaches are like that. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. I don't know what it is, but they, they just do that. Uh, and that's the sports parlance, and it's probably something that myself and few other people care about. But coaches are like that, by week, by week, by week. And I just think that they all want to get to, as they call it, the tournament at the end of it and try to go. So um, I, that did surprise I, me. I, I, I I'll was, let that one go. I was giddy because I was paying attention to the Zoom. For those who don't know on the Zoom, uh, when we're doing it from the media perspective, there is a list of everybody that's participating and you press a little button that says raise hand and and then the the guy in charge of of the meeting will say hey you know you're up you're up next you're up next and right before that it had been called out that hey we're going to answer these last three and there were three of us on that list i was one of those three and then he said the word bye week in response to the first of those three questions and then up pops a fourth hand from a Mr. Mike Casasa. And I was like, oh, he's going to do it. Oh, he's going to do it. He's going to bring it up. Um, you didn't, but oh my God, I was giddy. You, you should have. I, I don't usually include my, my face on these things, the camera aspect of it, but I was ear to ear grinning at you popping in with a question after the bell for why'd you call that a bye week? Do you <laughs> excuse advance? me, sir? Excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. Uh, I think I've made, made enough people mad over there in the past <laughs> two weeks that I should probably just keep myself tucked in every so often. Uh, one battle continues. I'm not going to start that battle there. I'll let him have that W. Um, uh, 
we had a buy last week, Chris, with our Monday morning Q&A because we didn't have a game. But if you're listening, um, you'll catch us after the game with our rapid reaction Saturday evening. Um, we'll put up a thread in the board, pepper us with some questions, and we'll post that Monday morning. Um, kind of a two sides of the coin here. You'll get our side after the game. Certainly we won't answer every question that you have. You'll have many more. We'll hopefully be able to get or otherwise provide answers, and we'll do that on Monday morning. So uh, stay tuned. Find that link on the website. Hit us with your questions. Uh, and I believe that's all the sales I have to do today, Chris. Yeah, that's it for me, too. And don't worry. And again, as Mike said, we're not going to be able to get all the questions on the podcast, but we will get to the rest of the questions. The ones we don't cover in the podcast, I will cover in written form later that day. So do not feel like your questions are being asked in vain. Ask them. Ask away. <laughs> Last one, we'll try to make this a tradition here since I bombed at the first one, but uh, who or what is something that we'll be talking about, whether it's after the game Saturday or Monday morning, that maybe we have covered, but not to the greatest depth, or maybe we haven't covered, that will be surprising. Bryce Ford Wheaton, seven catches, 110 yards, two touchdowns. Oh, my God. <laughs> is that what you're going with? Is that what you're looking I, for? I just wanted the name, but okay. There you uh, go. I'm going West Virginia pass rush one way or the other. I think it's going to, if it can't get home, they're in trouble. If it gets home, um, that might be a fun plane ride back to Morgantown. I, I look at guys like Cowan. I look at the Stills brothers. Uh, Pooler said his blood is boiling. Uh, I'm sure they've been hit over the head with how they were just kind of okay. Just okay was the words, but I, I kind of like what I saw from Cowan and Bartlett, but I just feel like they're going to get some pressure off that edge and they're going to play some games up front and take advantage of something right now. You look at weaknesses. There's not a whole lot with that offense. Of Oklahoma State's, there's an obvious one. Um, attack it, do what you can. I think that if they win, that could be a big reason why. But if Sanders and whomever is picking them apart and completing 70% of his passes for 280, 300 yards, they did not get pressure too. So um, pressure, pressure, pressure. I, I like it. I agree. I think um, it's interesting that you mentioned Pooler. He was also in one of my three key matchups. But I'll, I'll save that for the you guys to actually have to read that uh, instead of me talking about it again. That is the sizzle. You have to check out the steak whenever Chris posts that online. Until next time, I am Mike Casaza about to file another FOIA letter. <laughs> and I'm Chris Anderson, desperately trying to censor Mike Casaza. We will talk to you next time.